Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. This is the Apostle Paul's second prayer in this great letter, and one that I know has many rich spiritual truths for us. And so let's look at this together this evening. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find this on page 977, Ephesians 3, 14 to 21. This is God's word. The Apostle Paul, there in prison, writing to the church in Ephesus, now writes these words, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the things as we read the letters that the Apostle Paul has written, one of the things to help us understand the greatness of the Apostle Paul is to understand the circumstances in which he found himself as he wrote these letters to churches, some which he planted, some which he had never met, and to whom God had commissioned him to be the great apostle writing the full revelation of Jesus Christ, the complete mystery, as Paul's told us at the beginning of chapter 3, the mystery that was hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed through his apostles to the saints, the Gentiles would be made fellow heirs together with those Jews that believed in Jesus, and they would be made part of the household of God. They who once were far off, who had been cut off from the covenants and the promises would be brought near. And the circumstance in which the Apostle Paul found himself as he wrote many of these letters that contain the greatest mysteries that any ear has ever heard is that he, and we saw this last time we were together, considers himself to be a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's in chains. He is doing everything that he's doing. He is saying everything that he's saying as he is in prison for Jesus Christ and for the sake of the gospel. The Apostle Paul and the greatness of the Apostle Paul can only and ever be understood fully when we understand that he was in chains for Jesus Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached, I believe, for 12 years on the book of Ephesians and whose commentary I want to recommend to you. It's, it is magnificent, and after I read this, you'll probably want to rush out and go get it. I hope you will. Says, as he reflects on Paul being in prison and this now being the second prayer of the Apostle Paul for this church in Ephesus as he is in prison for Christ, says this. The important thing for us to realize is this, that though the Apostle is a prisoner, though a malignant enemy has arrested him and put him into bonds, and made it impossible for him to visit them in Ephesus and to preach to them or go anywhere else to preach. There is one thing the enemy cannot do, and that is he cannot prevent him from praying. The enemy can confine him to a cell. 
He can bolt and bar the doors. He can chain him to soldiers. He can put bars in the window and hem him in and confine him physically, but he can never obstruct the heart of the humblest believer to the heart of the eternal God. I think that's remarkable. That while Paul's in chains, he can't go and preach. He can't go and minister. He can't do the big conferences that every minister wants to do. What the Apostle Paul can do and the measure of a godly man and the measure of such a humble and great man as the Apostle Paul is that though he was confined to prison, he was not confined to a prayerless life. The one thing that he could do is that he could pray, and that is the one thing that he would do repeatedly for the church in Ephesus. Now, the apostle has already given us an avenue into what he prayed for the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 15 and following. He told them that he prayed for those three things, that their eyes would be enlightened, that they would know what is the hope of their calling, what is the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints, and what is the greatness of the power that works in those who believe according to the power of that was worked in Christ when God raised him from the dead, and that all of that was there for the believer. And Paul wanted them to see what was there for them. And now the apostle picking up in verse 14, what he began in verse 1 of chapter 3, notice in verse 1, Paul starts with that for this reason. And yet, It takes him all the way to verse 14 to get to what he wanted to say because he was so enamored with the fact that God had overwhelmed him with his grace, that God had called him to be the great apostle to the Gentiles, to fulfill the word of God, to take the mystery out and to be a steward of the everlasting mysteries of Christ. He was so overwhelmed with that that Paul had to elaborate for a moment on the greatness of what had happened to him before he ever gets to what he wants to say at the beginning of chapter 3. But now in verse 14, Paul comes and he says to them, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, we're going to see several things this evening as we look at Paul's second prayer. We are going to, first of all, see why the Apostle Paul prays. We're going to see, secondly, to whom he prays. And finally, we're going to see what he prays for. We're going to see why, to whom, and for what he prays. Notice verse 14, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. Now, the question with which we're faced is, what is the reason? Is Paul talking about just what he said at the end of chapter 2? Or is he talking about the totality of what he has said in the first two chapters? I think it's probably best for us to understand, and this is fascinating, by the way, that the Apostle Paul in chapter 1 gives us the greatest exposition of what we have in Jesus Christ, all of the riches of God's grace, every spiritual blessing that we have, in the heavenly places, in Christ, merely by God's grace, and then he prays. And then chapter 2, he comes back to remind us of what we were before we were in Christ, and now he prays. I think it's interesting that Paul really couples what the Lord Jesus does in the upper room in John chapter 14 through 17. Jesus there teaches his disciples, and by the way, if you ever want just a personal study. It's one of the most fascinating studies in the scriptures that Jesus teaches in the upper room in John 13 through 16, everything that he wants his disciples to know before he goes to the cross. And then he turns around in chapter 17 and takes the content of what he taught them, and he prays it back to his father in the high priestly prayer. 
It's instructive because it teaches us that the truths of God in the scripture are what fuel our prayers, that more than anything, what fuels the prayers of believers are the profound and deep and weighty truths about Jesus in the scriptures, and that's what drives the heart that has received the grace of God. Paul is overwhelmed by the grace of God. I love the way Sinclair Ferguson puts this, the gospel of grace produces in us a humility that causes us to bow down low. The gospel of the grace of God creates in us a humility that causes us to bow down low. If we are deficient in prayer, and I imagine most of us are, it's because we have not adequately gotten the greatness of the grace of God in the gospel. It's not because we're not doing enough. It's not because we're not trying hard enough. Fervent prayer doesn't happen because we're determined enough. Fervent prayer doesn't happen because we feel guilty that we're not doing it enough. Fervent prayer happens when a heart that has been captivated by God's grace is bowed low and overwhelmed with the magnificence of God's grace, both for itself and for others, and is laid prostrate before the God of grace for that grace. You know, I was greatly convicted as I was at the end of chapter 1, when we looked at that prayer of how little we actually get that, how little our prayers are animated by the grace of God in the gospel. Paul is bowing his knees to the Father because God's grace has come to us when we were dead in sins and trespasses, when we were alienated and cut off, and when there was no hope for anyone whatsoever outside of the covenant promises of God far away and strangers, and yet it's at that moment that Jesus came and made peace through the blood of his cross. And the Apostle Paul is driven down to his knees because he's meditating on the cross. You know, I know I say this to you a lot, but I'm going to keep saying this because I need to hear it as well. Um, When our lives and our Christian devotion experience are not what they ought to be, it's because we're not fixated on the cross. When our, when our thoughts are running wild and our passions are consuming us and our desire for the world is, is it, it's being tugged at and pulled at and we're frantic and we're frenetic and we're distracted and we're anxious and we're worried, our eyes are not fixed on the cross. The cross is a magnet that quiets the heart, that draws us down to our knees, that produces in us a deep desire to pray. And notice that the Apostle Paul tells us that it's for the reason of everything that he has talked about, all that's happened in Christ, and he bows his knees to the Father. I love this quote by R.C. Sproul. The more sanctified a person is by the gospel, the more heavily weighted his prayer time in adoration. I love that. The more we get the gospel, the more our lives are transformed by God's grace in the gospel, the more heavily weighted our prayer time in adoration. Now notice, secondly, that the apostle tells us to whom he prays, and it's significant. It's significant for us to understand the object of prayer. You know, there are lots of people that will tell you, well, as long as you pray generally to some higher power, let me tell you this evening, there is nothing further from the truth. In fact, the Lord Jesus told us that, that whatever we asked in his name to the Father, According to his will, it would be done for us, but that if we don't pray through the mediator, Jesus Christ, to the Father, we shouldn't expect anything to be done. We should expect nothing to be done. God the Father is the proper object 
of our worship and our affection and our prayers. And notice what Paul says as he is telling us about the one to whom he prays. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Now, there are two things being held in juxtaposition here. There is Paul's reverence and humility in talking about the posture of prayer. And there's Paul's sense of appreciation for the fatherhood of God and the adoption that we have in Jesus Christ. Remember at the beginning of chapter 1 that the Apostle Paul, when he is enumerating these spiritual blessings, one of the great ones is that God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Paul is enamored with the idea of some sonship. Now, um, I think it is important for us to understand that when we forget the idea of God as our father, we will automatically think of him as a harsh taskmaster. We will think of him as a rigid and unloving and cold and impersonal being. And the great doctrine in the scripture that warms our hearts as believers is to understand that the son of God came from heaven so that those who believe in him would receive the adoption as sons. The Apostle John tells us that in John chapter 1, that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. J.I. Packer very wisely says, if you want to know how much a man weighs his Christianity, find out what he thinks about the fatherhood of God. If you want to know what a person thinks about Christianity and, and how much they are living a Christian life, find out how much they make of the fatherhood of God. Now notice that the Apostle Paul is not just speaking of God as father generally for himself, but notice the way he describes him in verse 15. He says, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So Paul has an understanding of the church throughout the world as the great family of God made up of believers from every tongue and tribe and people and and language and who yet are gathered together under one father who have been begotten in the son of God, who have been brought forth from death to life and have been made sons and daughters of God by faith in Jesus Christ. He has a sense that the church is above anything that the church is, a family. Now, I think it would help us tremendously the more we thought of the church as a family of believers throughout the world, the more we thought of true believers as brothers and sisters in Christ, the more we thought about older believers as fathers and mothers in Christ. One of the things I used to not like and yet have come to love in Presbyterianism is when we get up to address the Presbytery as we have Presbytery meetings is we are to address, and Travis just asked me the other day when we were there, how am I supposed to address the men at Presbytery, and we address them as fathers and brothers. Now, it seemed like a formality in the early years for me, and and yet I think I've grown in an appreciation of it because I understand that what we're saying is that as believers, we are members of the same family. Notice the way Paul speaks about this. Paul says, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. He He envisages the family of God, the church of God, as those who have already made their journey to the heavenly Canaan, who are at rest before the presence of the Lamb, who are gathered together worshiping him right now, those who have gone before us, the spirits of just men and women made perfect, and those who 
are still bearing the heat of the day here through our pilgrimage are yet considered one family. And we have one father who is over all. And Paul goes to him as the father of that one family for the members of the family. He is praying for his family members. You know, when we pray, and I'm sure this is true for you as well, we have a tendency to pray for people that we're close to. We tend to, first of all, pray for our spouses and then for our children and then maybe for some friends and maybe for some distant cousins and then maybe for some coworkers. And then finally, last of all, we pray for a couple people in the congregation. And that ought not be so. We ought to be praying first and foremost for those with whom we are united together in the fellowship. We ought to be praying first and foremost for the members of the family of heaven and earth over whom the Father is that one glorious Father of grace and redemption. Now notice the bulk of what Paul says now thirdly is that he is giving us the what for which he prays to the Father. And it's interesting if you, if you took this prayer and you set it side by side with Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 1, you might be tempted to say, hasn't Paul already prayed for these same things? Hasn't he already, isn't he just being redundant? Isn't he just kind of just reiterating sort of the same thing, pray for spiritual good for the people to whom he's writing? No, Paul's not doing that. In chapter 1, he prayed that the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of the Ephesians' hearts, would be open so that they could see all that they have in Christ. Here in chapter 3, what Paul's praying for is that God would give them his spirit so that they could bear and experience all that has been given to them by God's grace in the gospel. Now you may say, what do you mean, bear in the experience of all that they have? Well, there is a sense in which the greatness of what God has given believers in Jesus by grace through faith There is a sense where it's so great and so overwhelming that we cannot experience it on our own. We cannot bear the weightiness of the glory of Jesus Christ indwelling his people on our own. I want to read this because I thought this was magnificent. It's a bit lengthy, and yet I think it captures what the apostle is doing here in verses 14 through 19. When we begin to understand who it is that has come to dwell within us, the Apostle Paul says that you need to be strengthened inwardly by God's Holy Spirit in your inner being to sustain the reality that is yours, that Jesus Christ, the King of glory, the crucified Lord, the risen Christ, the Lord of glory, has come to make his home in your heart. As you have received him through faith, now, so long as you and I think that it's a simple thing, and you have to listen very carefully, as long as you and I think that it's a simple thing, a small thing that happened to us when we became Christians, that we assume that we can carry the Lord Jesus around in life with great ease, it's just a matter of adding a little Jesus to your life. But once we have heard what the Apostle Paul has said, Here about Jesus Christ, risen from the grave, ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Lord of the whole universe, King of kings, that my small little life in all its poverty and frailty should become the dwelling place of the King of glory. How can I possibly sustain this? Only if by the power of the Holy Spirit, God strengthens me out of his glorious riches. Isn't that something? That the Father should be so determined that my life should be a temple 
in which Jesus Christ may dwell and be worshipped, a palace in which Jesus Christ may make himself a royal home, that in order to bring that to pass, he will send his Holy Spirit into my life to undergird me. Let me put it like this. You aren't capable for a minute of sustaining the majesty, the power, the glory of Jesus indwelling you. Not for a minute, not for a minute, unless he come and undergird you and strengthen you, and he more and more make your life clean, a place that is pleasant for the holy king of glory to dwell in. Here's what I think is being said both in Ephesians 3 and in what I just read. There is a sense where when believers begin to enter in on the privileges that they have, and they begin to experience the nearness of the Lord Jesus, it is so overwhelming that they cannot experience it on their own. They cannot bear the experience of it on their own. I'll never forget after I was converted, I um, I was driving down the highway. It was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. I was driving down the highway in Greenville, South Carolina, and I was meditating on the promises of the new covenant, and I was praying thanking the Lord that he had promised to forgive my sins and to write his law in my heart and that he had come to indwell me. And I was so overwhelmed with a sense of the power and the majesty and the glory of God that I had to pull over on the side of the road because I felt paralyzed by the presence of God. Now, maybe that's not something you've experienced. That's something that you should certainly pray for. But that is part of the experience that the Apostle Paul is praying that believers would be able to understand and experience. Notice what he says. He prays the first petition that he prays for them. He prays to the Father that according to the riches of his glory, verse 16, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, that God the Holy Spirit has to bear us up and strengthen us with his almighty power. You know, for us too often, the Christian life is just, yeah, I got that. Go through the motions, go to worship, do this, read my Bible, go out, no power. No power. I imagine that that's true for the majority of our lives. I got it. I've heard that. I know that. Yep, good. Okay, go home, go out, live my life, no power. I think that experiencing The power of the gospel, the transforming, overwhelming power of the gospel is an exceedingly rare thing, and it shouldn't be. For anyone who has trusted in Jesus, it should be the longing of our souls to know more of the power, to be overwhelmed with the sense of the power, to have the power of the Holy Spirit overwhelm us and overshadow us, not in some kooky, hyper-emotionalistic sense, but in a real sense in which we understand that God is dwelling in us. You know, I... um, I'll never forget, also as a young Christian, realizing that the great blessing of knowing the triune God and having been redeemed by him is that he promised to dwell in us. And I remember meditating on that one day and thinking, how remarkable that the God of the universe, the God who is infinite in majesty and glory, the God who is self-sufficient, who needs nothing, who is infinitely holy, who describes himself as inhabiting eternity would come and dwell in people that he made out of the dust. That's remarkable. All we are, even Kansas knows that, dust in the wind. Even pagans get it by common grace. All we are is dust. Your body returns to the ground from which it was taken. From dust you are, and to dust you will return. And yet the infinite God has so 
promised to condescend because of what Jesus has done, that he would inhabit the very whole of our beings. And Paul prays that we would be strengthened with might in the inner man, with power, through his spirit, in our inner being. And then notice what is the second petition and why would he pray that? Notice verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. You know, William Still, as he reflected on why we experience so little of this, made the very astute observation that so often we would rather embrace the pollutions that we like to embrace by nature. And, and let me say this this evening, those pollutions may not be the, the filth of pornography and other things with which most of the world is inundated. It may just be pride and, and worship of family and desire for safety and success and, and to be a good parent and to be uh, uh, good financially and, and all those other things that consume us. And, and those trite laying hold of the things that just are fleeting. And, and that we would rather embrace the, the pollution of idolatries than we would to experience the nearness of the Lord Jesus Christ indwelling us. That if we realize that we need the Holy Spirit to cleanse us so that we would be a pure temple unto him, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And then notice what the apostle goes on to say. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, that the great goal of all Christians is to be rooted in the Lord Jesus, to be immovable, to have the Lord Jesus Christ as the roots to which we are. We are set deeply into the soil of God's grace so that we are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, so that we're not, we're not driven every which way. Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 4, but that we are rooted in love, that we are rooted in the love that God has for us. Notice what the apostle says now, the third petition, verse 18, that we may be rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to, depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Here's what Paul's saying finally in this, this last great petition. He's saying that Jesus' love for his people is so great that it's absolutely impossible for you to get your arms around it. That the length and breadth and width and height are so unmeasurable that it is absolutely impossible for you to get your arms around us. Paul's essentially praying two things for the Ephesians to know about the love of Jesus. The first is the greatness of the love of Christ in us, that Christ may dwell in us, the greatness of his love as he indwells us, and the immeasurableness of his love for us. You know, I've said this to you repeatedly, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just keep saying it because I think we need to keep hearing it. The world will say, God loves me. God loves everybody. The world doesn't believe for a moment that God loves them or anyone else because the world doesn't go to the place where we know the love, and that is in the sacrificial, atoning, propitiatory death of Jesus. You know, it's not in our circumstances where we comprehend the love of God. It's not in our circumstances. God's love certainly is manifested in our circumstances. I read a, a great and very helpful thought the other day. The test, and we can insert the word love in here, the test, the test by which we believe the goodness of God 
is found when it goes against all of our natural instincts. So when everything in your life seems to go counter to the truth that God is full of goodness, that is the test whether we actually believe that God is full of goodness. And when everything in your life seems to go counter to the truth of the love of God, that's when we fix our eyes on the cross and we say, if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? We don't say, I'm so glad that this is working out and this is working out and this is working out. I now know that God loves me. I made the mistake as a young Christian of saying once, um, I think I had met Anna and I told a pastor friend of mine, man, God must really love me to have let me meet my wife. And he said, oh, no, no. He said, you're wrong to judge it that way. You know that God loves you because he gave his son for you, not because he gave his, a, a wife to you. It's true. If we start to measure the love of God by our circumstances, we're going to have a very, very, very small view of the love of God. But if we start to measure God's love by the infinite depth of what he did for us in Jesus Christ on the cross and in what he continues to do for us in Jesus Christ risen, ascending, and interceding for us, we will understand the vastness of the love of Christ. I love singing with you all at Midway Congregational Church, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. And I love the way the hymn writer speaks of it. Rolling like a mighty ocean underneath me, over me, all around me, is the current of his love. You know, we, we know so little of the love of Jesus. We experience so little of the love of Jesus, and that's why the apostle would pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of that love, and they would be filled, verse 19, with all the fullness of God. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't point out to you the importance of verses 20 and 21. There is, there is a danger here that we read these things and we think it's all about how we benefit because Paul is praying that believers would benefit from the greatness of God's grace and what he's done in Jesus, that they would be strengthened by his spirit, that they would be able to, to know the indwelling of the Lord Jesus, that they would be rooted and grounded in him, that they would know the length and breadth and width and height of the love of Christ. There's a danger that we become man-centered in our understanding of what Paul's praying for. But notice what Paul says in verse 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul essentially is rounding out his prayer by reminding the Ephesians and by reminding us that God can do more than we can ever understand. He can do all that we pray for. He can do more than what we can pray for. He can do more than what we could ask in prayer for. And yet he does it all for his glory. Because at the end of the day, the reason you were created, the reason you've been redeemed, the reason the apostle was praying the things he was praying for, the reason that we're sitting here worshiping and we're longing to grow and experience these things, at the end of the day, there is one reason for all of it. It is that God gets the glory in the church and through Jesus Christ. Notice how Paul ends that. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus 
throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You know, I've repeatedly told us in this short series that one of the magnificent things about the grace of God in the gospel is that it is deep and it is wide and it is never ending and you can always go deeper. Augustine spoke of, um, Augustine spoke of the gospel of John and, and perhaps he may have even spoken of the scriptures as um, shallow enough for a baby and deep enough for an elephant to wade in. And the gospel is shallow enough for the simplest believer and it is deep enough for the most mature most spiritually minded, um, the, the believer who has trusted Christ the longest and continues to trust him. And so the goal for us, the goal for us is that we would continue to plumb the depths. Now, I want to challenge us this evening with an application. I challenge myself with you. I want to challenge us to be praying the things that the Apostle Paul has prayed both in chapter 1 and here in chapter 3 for the members of this congregation, that we would not just pray for our own needs, not just pray for the needs of our relatives and and family members. We would not just pray for those who are friends and those that we like and those that we want to pray for and pastors and missionaries and everybody else that we pray for, but that we would pray for one another, that new covenant, imagine what would happen. And I'm not saying that flippantly. Imagine what would happen if a little congregation like our own, both here today and and other Lord's Days, we're fervently praying these things for one another. We were praying fervently these things for each other, what God would do, what what it would look like, the temple. God is turning us into a temple, being filled with the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ. What would that look like? I don't want to spend my life as your pastor and not see that. And I hope you don't want to spend your life just sitting where you are, going through the motions, another Sunday, another week, just going through. I hope that God will give us grace to be captured by these things, that they will press us down low, that we will bow our knees to the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would grant us renewing grace this evening, that you would make us a people of prayer, that you would give us the same commitment as the Apostle Paul, that you would make us a people who long to know these things in our lives and long to see them in the lives of those that you have knit us together with in fellowship. We pray, our Father, that you would do this for your church universal. We pray that you would make us tonight to know those things for which the Apostle Paul prayed so many thousands of years ago. We pray, our Father, that we would know a renewed strengthening by your Spirit, that Christ would dwell in our hearts by faith, that we would be rooted and grounded in love, and that we would know the length and the breadth and the width and the height of the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Father, do this for us, that you might get glory in the church and in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.